0: Turn to the second chapter of Luke, will you please, to the Christmas story. And I'd like to uh, tell one phase of the story that's normally overlooked. It's the story of Simeon. It's uh, in many ways a a very unremarkable story. I can't recall ever having heard a sermon on Simeon. I... uh, I haven't read a, an article on this particular individual. The, um, the articles in the dictionary always seem to me to be uh, uninspired and, and uninspiring. And yet, I, I think this is a crucial element in the Christmas story uh, for a couple of reasons. For one, I don't think anything is merely incidental in Scripture. There's a purpose for everything. Uh, everything is there for a reason and is profitable. It's true that some aspects of Scripture are more profitable than others, but it's all uh, there and designed to build us and help us to grow and to be the kind of men and women that God intends us to be. And secondly, I'm convinced that Luke chooses his sources very, uh, very well and for a, for a good reason. His, his theme throughout both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts is to bring forward witnesses to the nature and character of Jesus, and to give testimony to some unique element of his uh, of his character. And Luke is doing this uh, in the story of Simeon. Let's begin with verse 21 of chapter two, Luke 2:21. 2, 21. Verses 21 through 24 give us the background to the story of this, uh, of this man and his, his witness to Jesus. And Luke tells us, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise Jesus, he was named Jesus, the name the angels had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, To present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. It strikes me that this is a good commentary on Paul's uh, comment in Galatians 4, that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. It was necessary for him to fulfill all righteousness, though in his case his parents did it for us. He was, he was uh, for him. He was subject to the law in every respect. It was both a law and custom in Israel to circumcise a child on the eighth day. And then uh, about 33 days later, when the mother had an opportunity to rest and to make the long journey to Jerusalem, the mother and child went up to, uh, to the holy city. And there she offered a sacrifice for her own purification and presented the child to the Lord. It was an unusual sort of ceremony. Uh, in Israel, a child was considered to belong to God. That was his child. And uh, the parents, through, the, uh, through a token gift, which would amount to about $3.50 in our money, mm-hmm. bought him back. It was, it was merely a symbol a way of reminding themselves that the child was God's, and they, but they had the privilege of buying the child back and, and raising uh, raising that, uh, that individual. And it's for this purpose that Joseph and Mary went up to the temple and offered the prescribed sacrifices, which in their case was, uh, as Luke tells us, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, which gives us an idea of how poverty-stricken they, they really were. Normally, the mother offered a, a young lamb and a turtle dove or a pigeon but in this case uh, neither Mary nor Joseph had the means to make that sort of offering and so they gave the simplest possible acceptable sacrifice which was uh, a pair of doves or two young pigeons and while they were there coincidentally though not at all a coincidence uh, there was a man called Simeon Luke tells us who was righteous and devout, He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now, there are a lot of traditions that have grown up around this man. The uh, Jews, uh, shortly after, uh, uh, or the early Christians, rather, shortly after Jesus' time, thought that this man was the father of Gamaliel, under whom Paul uh, studied, but it's uh, more likely that he was unknown. His name is very common. It's the name Simon that Peter bore, and you find any number of people at this time who had that name, it's as common as our name, John or or Mary. Uh, He wasn't a priest, and uh, there's nothing in the passage that indicates he was a very old man. I've always assumed that he was because he seemed to look forward to uh, to death that was a release for him but if you read the passage there's absolutely no- nothing in the passage that indicates he was elderly uh, there are some significant things said about him though luke tells us he was righteous that is he did what was right he had a lot of integrity he was honest and genuine and and real and secondly, Luke tells us that he was devout, that is, he, he uh, was scrupulous in observing the religious traditions of Israel. He went to the temple for the uh, prescribed feasts, he read the scriptures, he prayed, he gave alms, he did the things that you would expect a pious Jew to do. And we're told he was waiting for the comforting or the consolation of, of Israel. According to the Old Testament, Israel, before her Messiah came, would, would go through a time of intense trouble. It's called the period of Jacob's trouble. And it was the widely held belief that in this time of trouble, Messiah would come and he would, he would give comfort to Israel. So the coming of Messiah came to be associated with this idea of consolation. The consolation of Israel was the coming of, of her king. And this man uh, waited for Messiah to come. But the interesting thing is that this man knew that when Messiah came, he would die. Because we're told in verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not not die before he had seen the Messiah. That's probably what Luke means um, when he says the Holy Spirit was upon him. That is, he was a prophet. He received direct revelation, which was unusual in those days. For some 400 years, no one had received any word directly from God. There were no prophets in Israel. But Simeon was a prophet. He, he's, God spoke to him directly and told him that he was to be assigned to the nation. And apparently the, the nation, at least the pious uh, portion of, of the nation, the hardcore of faith, kept watching Simon because they knew that he would live until Messiah came. This was his function in life. This was his job. We don't know what he said, he didn't probably didn't preach any sermons, he just lived. That's all. It that was God's will. And as long as he lived, the new Messiah had not yet come because he would he would die after Messiah came. We're told in verse 27 that that on the particular day when Joseph and Mary came to Jerusalem to uh, dedicate the child, Simeon moved by the spirit went into the temple courts, into the precinct, the temple precinct. The uh, courts sat in front of the temple proper. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simon took him in his arms. This must have been a startling thing for Mary. She uh, had the Lord in her arms and was making her way up to the priest in order to present him to the Lord when this uh, gentleman stepped out of the crowd and, and took, took the baby Jesus out of her arms and cradled him. The, the word that, that Luke uses for arms is an unusual word in the Greek language. It means literally to cradle him in this manner. And uh, it struck me again uh, how, how extensive the incarnation really was. We, we tend to take for granted the fact that God became flesh, but we forget what that really means. That God became a tiny infant, dependent upon a human mother, as Wesley puts it. God contracted to a span. Uh, he, he limited himself to that extent. As Paul puts it in Philippians 2, he emptied himself as God. He who was in the form of God the word for form means intrinsic likeness. He who, who is intrinsically God, inherently God, emptied Himself of His prerogatives as God and limited Himself to this extent that He was cradled in the arms of, of this, uh, of this godly Jew. And Simeon praised God; that is, he thanked the Lord for sending His Messiah. And he said to Mary and Joseph, or to the Lord as well as to Mary and Joseph, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Uh, This is the poem that's normally referred to as the Nunc Demetus. Now you have released the, the Latin words for that, for that phrase. And it's, uh, uh, along with Mary's Magnificat and other of these poems that surround the story of Jesus, adds something more to our understanding of who the Lord is and what he came to do. It's a very short poem, just uh, three couplets. Uh, that's all we know of Simon's verbal ministry to the nation. He quoted a poem. I have a friend Bob Smith who uh, uh, frequently will say, cannot sing but will recite short poem. And that's what uh, that's what Simeon does. But his poem is is freighted with meaning. In the first phrase in verse twenty nine, he uh, he states that now he can can die in peace, Sovereign Lord or master, as you have promised, you now dismiss your slave in peace. He refers to himself, as a as God's slave, God is his master, and he's a slave. He's fulfilled his role. He's uh, he's come to the end of the task that his master had given to him. His his role in life was simply to live out his life as a sign until the Lord came, and and now his job was over. He was dismissed. And in verse three, he gives the explanation for his dismissal: "For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of." of all people literally he says this salvation and evidently looking at or pointing to the baby and certainly referring to the to the infant this little child that he was holding in his arms represented salvation this is the one that God had sent to save the world that's what he means by preparing salvation in the presence of all the nations how like God when he wants to do a, a great task to do it in such an unorthodox way—to send not a, a king, as we would normally envision a king, but a but a little infant. This is salvation, he says. This is the way you're going to save the world, through this infant. And then, elaborating in verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Now, this was something new to Mary, and to Joseph. She had gathered a great deal of information about about the child from the shepherds and from Elizabeth and from others. But this was something new, that that salvation would be offered to the Gentiles. She understood that Messiah was coming to Israel, but this was something in, entirely new and novel, that he was going to reach out to the rest of the world and that he would restore Israel to her glory. Jesus is Israel's glory. That's what made her great, and that's what will make her great again. And uh, though Israel was in a depressed state when Simeon recited this poem, the point is that God is going to restore Israel's glory. And this was the new thing to Mary and Joseph. Now, all of us, uh, when we bring a child into the world, think that our child is going to be the Savior, particularly our firstborn. This is the child that's going to uh, set the world right. But uh, we discover after a while that they're just little sons of Adam, and they uh, duplicate the sins of their forefather, and they're not the solution at all. They're, they're simply part of the problem. But uh, what Mary now comes to understand is that this child who came, this, uh, this small infant, is going to be the Savior that the world has been looking for since the, since the very beginning, since the fall of, of the human race. And therefore, as, as Luke tells us, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about them, about him. Then Simeon blessed them, he invoked a blessing upon them, and said to Mary. It's interesting, Joseph was left out of this, uh, this uh, revelation that, that follows. And I think it's because Joseph very early passed from the scene. Traditionally, he died when Jesus was about 18 years of age. And and he didn't really bear the brunt of the incarnation as Mary did. And so these are words of comfort to Mary. He said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that can be that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your, your own soul too. And this follows right on the heels of Simeon's revelation that this child will be the Savior of the world. And then what follows seems to be uh, bad news. Uh, it's going to cause distress. And Mary is told that that the sword will pierce her heart, because of of two things. This child, he says, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He's alluding to a figure that occurs frequently in the Old Testament: the idea that Messiah is a is a rock upon which uh, people will fall and break themselves, as though it's a a mountain peak that they try to assault and they. Uh, they, they fall off of the mountain to their deaths. He says, this child will, will cause distress to people. He, he will cause them to fall down and destroy themselves. And secondly, he will cause many to rise in Israel. He'll cause division. Some will, will see him and uh, will be scandalized by him, will be embarrassed by him. And they'll resist him, and they'll fall to their deaths. Others will, will love him and respond to him and worship him, and they'll rise again. Now, he's using both of these figures uh, symbolically. He's not talking about physical death, but rather the death-like state that sets in when, when we resist the salvation that, that God sent. The boredom, the listlessness. The inertia, the lack of, of initiative, the restlessness, the pain, the hurt, the melancholy that sets in when we try to go it, go it alone without the Lord Jesus. But uh, on the other hand, if we see him for, for who he is, there's life. There's a rising again. There's joy, peace, and wholeness, and satisfaction. And the second thing that he says is that this child will be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, wherever he goes, he will be a, a sign in the sense that he will represent God's activity in the world, and it will always be the sort of, of activity that that people don't understand. He'll be controversial. He'll be unorthodox. He'll be Unconventional. He'll do unexpected things. And the people will be scandalized by it. They'll feel uneasy in his presence. Because he won't do things the way you would expect God's Son to do things. Now, that started from the very beginning. It started with the virgin birth. That was something that no one ever understood. It was an embarrassment to Mary from from the very beginning. Uh, can you imagine Mary's dilemma having received this revelation from the angel that she would bear the uh, the Messiah and that though she were she was a virgin and then apparently she didn't tell Joseph and she went off to the big city to see elizabeth and three months later she came back and announced to her fiance that she was pregnant he couldn't understand that any any more than you or I could understand it and and telling him that this was God's baby wouldn't uh, that wouldn't solve any problems. He didn't understand. And were it not for a revelation from God, uh, he wouldn't have understood. He would have would have put her away, would have divorced her quietly. Uh, Mary herself didn't understand. The prophecy in Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, that a virgin would conceive is very difficult to interpret. It seems to apply to, to Isaiah's time, the 8th century. The rabbis didn't understand that Messiah would be born of a virgin. No one expected it. When the angel announced to Mary that, that she would have a child, her, her question was, how can this be since I'm a virgin? If she had known that Messiah would be born of a virgin, she would never have asked that question. It wasn't expected. And living in a small town like uh, Galilee, everyone knew that she was that she was pregnant before she was married and that Jesus was born out of wedlock. And they bore that stigma from the very beginning. Everywhere Jesus went, he scandalized people because they thought that he was illegitimately born. Uh, much later, when he was involved in controversy with the, uh, with the Pharisees, uh, as he was besting them in argument, their response was, well, at least we're not born of fornication. The implication was, you are. And uh, as Jesus grew up uh, in his life and character and the way he related to people, they just they didn't understand him. He ran with the wrong crowd. He uh, he didn't mind embarrassing people, particularly the religious establishment. Mary couldn't understand that. Uh, Simeon was right. Time and time again, a sword thrust through her heart. She thought he'd gone mad. The the word that Luke uses is not the word for the little short uh, uh, Roman sword, the makara, but a a long sword that would would produce an enormous amount of pain. Over and over again, Mary felt those sword thrusts. Never free from them. And then Jesus began to teach, and, and that didn't make things better. It made it worse. Jesus said to people who are very much like like you and me blessed are the are the meek for they shall inherit the earth people didn't like that everyone knows the meek don't inherit the earth those who defend themselves those who are strong those who are tough we're taught from the time we're little kids if you're going to get ahead in this world you just you got to do what you have to do and Jesus said no blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the purveyors of pornography and, and, uh, and immorality in our, in our country say, No, blessed are those who fill their minds with the pornography. Those are the ones who will be satisfied and happy. And Jesus said, No, blessed are the pure in heart. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And secular society says, no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after power and influence and affluence and and a position in this world. Wherever he went, he was was misunderstood. He was a controversial figure. People opposed him. They spoke against him. And the cross was unquestionably the the final indignity. Any Jew knew that it was a shameful thing to be crucified on a on a cross. The, the Old Testament said so. Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Uh, what they didn't understand is that he was indeed cursed, but he was bearing our curse. But as as they saw him hanging on the cross, they didn't see it in that manner. They simply saw that uh, he was a cursed individual, and they couldn't understand it. And all of these things were like sword thrusts in Mary's heart. At one point, she sent, evidently, some of the other children to go get Jesus and bring him home because he was making a fool of himself. And you know, he he continues to be controversial today. I I find that nothing has changed. Not one thing. I find today when people... See Christ for the first time, and they see who he really is, and they hear words like these, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and gentle in heart. They no more understand or respond positively to that than they did in Jesus' day. Because, again, we're not not taught to be meek and humble. And we're taught to be tough. We're taught to be proud. We're taught to defend ourselves. And we men don't like the idea of submitting to any man. I don't care who he is, whether it's another man or God Almighty. And when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and we realize that becoming a Christian means to submit ourselves to the will of God, we don't like that. I don't want to hear that. I'm offended by that. That scandalizes me. And I turn away from it. Or when those of us who have submitted to his yoke discover what it really means to walk with him, we discover it's a very unconventional, very unorthodox lifestyle. And I need to continue to work on my marriage, even though it's difficult, even though my mate no longer loves me. Or a response And all the world says you, There's no reason for you to stay in that relationship Why suffer that sort of pain and, and turmoil Why not give it up It's not worth it And the Lord says no No that's God's place for you You be God's man or God's woman there And you continue to endure And you, you lay hold of, of my strength And my grace And I'll I'll be your adequacy, but we don't particularly like that. That's not conventional. And all the world says to us, we need to be comfort, and and the world fills our uh, vision with creature comforts and every every sort of uh, device to make our life more comfortable. And then we discover that following the Lord sometimes means being very uncomfortable that God is not primarily concerned about making us comfortable, but about our character. And He will sometimes permit our lives to become very uncomfortable because comfort is not the highest good in the world. It's conformity to Jesus Christ that matters. And we don't like that. It hurts. It's unorthodox. That's not what my... What my inner man says. I, as a matter of fact, I've come to believe that if you want to know what what God wants us to do, nine times out of ten, it's the very thing that we would not normally do in a situation. You, you just uh, think through your normal approach to life and turn it upside down, and that's God's way of of dealing with our with our problems. And we we see someone who. Is failing and struggling and, and they've got it all wrong and our natural tendency is to write them off. Or we see someone sinning and our natural tendency is to go tell someone else about it. And gossip. Pass on the information to another Christian about what so-and-so is doing. And the Lord says, no, you go to that brother and restore him in a spirit of meekness. That's unconventional. Uh... But that's the way it is, to live with the Lord. And the real issue is, at every moment of decision, are we going to do what God wants us to do? Or are we going to be scandalized and walk away? Simeon said, that's, that's what you can expect. He's going to be a sign to be opposed. And you'll discover in your own life that whenever you're confronted with god's will for your life you can either oppose it or you can submit simeon described himself as as god's bond servant the lord was the master and he was a servant and he was willing to to live out god's will for his life whatever it meant even though it was to be largely unnoticed and simply to live out his life until the messiah came or mary who describes herself as the lord's handmaiden Whose function in life was simply to make her body available to God so that salvation could be brought to the earth. Now, those are the choices that we face. If we oppose Him, the result is death. We'll fall to our deaths in the sense that life will be emptied of its meaning, it'll become less and less satisfying, less and less fulfilling. Or we can submit to Him. And when we do, there's joy, there's wholeness, there's peace, there's meaning, there's satisfaction. And it seems to me that that's what we've got to keep in mind during this Christmas season. There's so many distractions, so many things that get us off the track, get us preoccupied with the wrong things instead of focusing on God and His will for our lives. Again, as Jesus put it, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. He's the only one that can satisfy. There isn't one thing you'll receive this Christmas season that will satisfy you. The more we get, the more we, got we want. Nor will our just the presence of our relatives here this, this Christmas season satisfy us, because we all know that, uh, that people never fulfill our expectations. They never will. But Jesus will. And he says, if we take his yoke upon us and we learn of him, we'll find rest for our souls. That's what we want. And he's the only one that can satisfy. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we we have all from time to time felt this temptation to be embarrassed by our Lord the tendency to, uh, to shrink from doing what we know we've been called to do because of what it may cost us or because of the way we may look in the eyes of others. We, uh, we would ask that our, our vision and our faith would be renewed during this Christmas season and we would, would come to understand again that uh, you came to rescue us, to save us from ourselves. We want the, the peace and the rest that you offer. And we know that comes from submitting to your will, whatever it may cost. Thank you for, for being our Lord. Thank you for being present with us during this season to give us what we need to live life as you've called us to live it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.